Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to episode three. Today I had... An amazing chat with Annie Simpkins from Favera UK. I will put a link to her Instagram in the notes. She is a fermentation enthusiast, a master composter, among many things. I hope you enjoy. Oh, it's a sign by sandal. And I keep showing your fermentation fervor. <laughs> so he's the person that I got the idea for, the name. Amazing. Um, because the word fervor, like you have a fervor for something, comes from the Latin. It's a, it's a bit highbrow, I, I mean, I have to explain it to everybody. It comes from the Latin for to boil or to bubble, which is the Latin name for fermenting. Ah, okay. And so with the with the production of CO2, that's, yeah. that's where they... Yeah. Um, I, I had always wanted to get in business, but I didn't know the name, and then I was, I was thinking of that. And when was it? Was it your first fermentation course you did with Sandor Katz that he signed this for you? Yes. Uh, so when I came back to the UK... I had applied for his full um, workshop and unfortunately I've been rejected <laughs> because he gets a lot of people that apply. Yeah. Um, but then in the meantime, I had gone to see him when he was in London in the autumn of 2019. He was uh, doing workshops at two places. One was at a school in London and then the other one was up at the School of Artisan Food up in Nottinghamshire. So I went to both of those, attended both of those events and then just sort of chatted to him at the end. And I suppose I must have asked the right questions or showed the appropriate level of enthusiasm because about a week after I got back from, uh, after he got back to Tennessee from England, he wrote and said, 
hey, guess what? We had somebody drop out. Uh, you just seem like to be the perfect person to fill that space. Would you like to come? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And so me and along with a dozen other people, but two other people from the UK, attended that in November in 2019 up in the mountains of Tennessee. It was freezing. <laughs> but uh, I had a little cabin out in the woods, which I think it must have felt sorry for me because everyone else was camping. So, uh, but it was fantastic and very inspirational. And we, uh, we got to really form a bond. There were people from Central America as well as all over the US and the UK. And um, just very inspirational just to be with him for a week in person and hear lots of ideas and share ideas with all the other people. Wow, and so how old is he now? Gosh, I don't know, I think he must be in his early 60s, I think. Yeah, but I mean, his story is very inspirational um, because he didn't know much about fermenting. He just grew up with eating sauerkrauts and pickles and just knew he liked that flavor. Yeah. Um, and then sort of he was the first person. I think I've got one here. This isn't the original, but after he developed some of his original recipes, he wrote a little brochure, a little booklet, because people were asking him for all of this. This is a modern version of it, but when we were there in Tennessee, we saw the original. It was really just more, not much more than a pamphlet. Um, and I wish I'd had it, because in the early 1980s my husband and I were living in Southern California and once a week I used to ring my mother and my mother had a Polish lived here in London and had a Polish hairdresser and the Polish hairdresser used to make sauerkraut all the time this is in the 80s so my mother is telling me you know this is pre-internet pre-google how you make sauerkraut <laughs> but I think something was lost in translation because I dutifully cut up the cabbage and sprinkled over some salt and some caraway seeds and then I left it in an open bowl for a week without a cover on it. I didn't know what I was doing and of course I just got a slimy moldy mess like oh I don't know if this is for me or not and then luckily my technique has improved a bit since then. Yeah I think we've all had that experience that I can remember the first time I made sauerkraut and I just couldn't believe that it was going to work. I, I cut it up and I got it in the bowl and managed to get it into a jar. And I just doubted myself. And I think I put another two or three tablespoons of salt in there. Mm -hmm. And so it just sat on the counter for like six months. It didn't do anything because it must have been like 20% salt. Yeah. I think that's the... I think that... Those of us who are into fermenting, it's the same sort of sense of optimism that gardeners have. Because if you're a keen gardener, you tend to the soil and then you put a seed in it and you've got, got the optimism that from that seed is going to grow something lovely out of the ground. And we have that same sense of optimism that, well, you know, I'll just try to add this, you know, cardamom and... I think I'll put a couple of chilies in and, and you just have to have that optimism that something good's going to come out of it and most of the time it does and sometimes it doesn't but when it doesn't 
I always learn a lesson like, oh, okay, I won't do that again. I, I, I learn from the mistakes that I make. Yeah. But it's just fun experimenting along the way. And nothing goes to waste. If I something's gone wrong, but it's still safe, but it's not very tasty, I usually give it to the dogs. But if it's <laughs> unsafe, it goes in the compost and creates a lot more microorganisms in the compost. So nothing gets wasted. Yeah, these are some of the... Um, you were saying you feed them milk kefir as well. Yeah, so um, I've, I've made and drank kefir for many years. But when we lived in Bolivia, there's a huge street dog program problem there are lots and lots of feral dogs and many of my friends and colleagues used to adopt dogs and one of my neighbors had adopted a dog and she'd taken really good care of it and bathed it and taken it to the vet but she just kept saying he's just got such terrible bad breath he's just really stinky dog breath and I brush his teeth every day and I just thought well it's probably not his mouth it's probably his his, his guts, his digestive system. Have you ever tried kefir? And she had never heard of it. So I gave her some and showed her how to make it. And it was she was a convert because she said about two weeks later his bad breath had gone. <laughs> there's a dog that had lived on the streets of La Paz, Bolivia, you know, eating garbage basically. And then two weeks on kefir, his bad breath had gone. So she was. I don't. I don't, I'm not a you know, medical professional, so I, I can't tell people this will cure this, that, or the other. But I can tell people anecdotal things that have happened to me. Like I used to get cold sores all the time. And then I haven't had a single cold sore since I've drunk kefir. Really? So that's, and I, I mean, obviously I feel better, and I, I have kefir almost every day. Amazing. Yeah, that's everything I've read says that milk kefir is the one is the most effective uh, probiotic. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to go right back to um, the beginning and for you to talk about your journey. So first, how you met your husband and the life, uh, the lives that you guys have led. Yeah, so a um, bit of an unusual background. Um, so when I left university, um, back in the... 80s, um, <laughs> 70s, excuse me, I'm even older, uh, I couldn't get a job, so things haven't changed much, And but I was working with some Australians who were doing a gap year, and back then it was pretty much unknown, but it was quite popular with Australians working in London, and I just thought, you know what, there's more to life, I just want to travel, so I started applying for jobs everywhere, and I ended up getting a job in Moscow of all places and this is when Brezhnev was president it was the height of the Soviet Union and I was a nanny for a British diplomat at the, America, at the British Embassy there and my husband was in the US Navy they were doing construction work on the American Embassy being built there and then we met and six months later we got married here and then wow. I was a Navy wife and I ended up having a career of my own following him around in the Navy because my background is in biology. So I did natural resources management, environmental protection on a military basis because they have a lot of endangered species and forests on a military basis. So that was a really satisfying career. And then when he retired from the Navy, we weren't done traveling. So we... Uh, both joined the American Foreign Service 
and then we've been living in a, many different foreign countries for the last 16, 17 years or so. And uh, now I'm retired here in England. And so you mentioned um, you lived in for a time in Colombia. Bolivia. In Bolivia, yeah. sorry. Yeah, we were, we were, so I think my, my style of fermenting is inspired by the flavors and the sights and the sounds and the foods that I've seen in different countries I've lived, but particularly in Bolivia, some of the fruits and the flavors are just so unusual. I think that we've got used to a lot of Asian cuisine in this country, um, but there's not a lot of influence here for Latin American cuisine. And I don't mean Mexican, I mean Chile, Peru, Brazil, Bolivia, um, such interesting flavors. Um, and not necessarily fermenting, but not a terribly rich culture in fermenting, but just the flavors and the flavor combinations. There's a, there's a fantastic restaurant in La Paz, it's called Gusto, and um, it's basically comes from the Noma tradition of using uh, local ingredients. And they don't serve anything that doesn't grow in, except in Bolivia, but it's nothing you would have heard of. Just, you know, 20 course tasting menu with such all the local, you know, indigenous 200 varieties of potato wow. that grow on Altiplano. And um, when you were in Bolivia, you said you were working in, um, was it developing? Um, small businesses or so I was uh, worked in I worked in the embassy as a cultural affairs officer so we were doing cultural and professional exchanges between the United States and Bolivia so the political situation there is still is and was quite tense between Bolivia and the United States um, but of course like in any country that I've lived the people-to-people -people relationship was maintained was very strong. Um, we provided, for instance, Fulbright scholarships for people to come and study in the United States, as well as bringing over professionals. But my favorite part was the music culture. We'd bring American bands and musicians over and do tours, jazz, blues, that kind oh, of thing. Wow. And so it was amazing. I was, I was sort of like a roadie for a week, taking people <laughs> around Bolivia and then sharing the American culture with the local Bolivian people and taking them out to restaurants and just exploring the country together. And you were, your milk kefir exploits in Bolivia, they were outside of your work? Yeah, so um, of course, you know, when you live in a foreign country, you participate in the local community. And I, I lived out in town and... Um, I noticed that I talked to a lot of people, especially a local Bolivians that I knew about kefir, nobody had heard of it. And so I helped to set up a small Facebook group in Spanish there, and Facebook's great for sharing things. So, uh, you know, I persona que tiene granos de kefir, or as I came to find out, they're called Bulgaros, um, I guess, which comes from Bul Bulgarian. And so this small niche community of Bolivia grew and it was so strange because <laughs> I was very prolific and fairly good at making kefir and I always had extra grains to spare. So I'd say, you know, yo tengo grounds de kefir and then people would write me Facebook messages and I'd end up being 
two or three times a week I'd be going on sort of these blind dates at coffee bars around the house, <laughs> bringing my kefir. It's a good thing the police didn't follow me. I'm handing over strange packages, <laughs> white substances to people at coffee bars. And then they would follow up with WhatsApp or Facebook messages like, what do I do with this? I think I've killed my babies. And I was sort of like the informal kefir revivalist in Bolivia. <laughs> so uh, it was, yeah, but it was really fun just getting to meet new people. And I eventually did meet an older person who did say, oh, yes, we used to call them Bulgaros. And there was a tradition, I think like a lot of things have died out, there was a tradition previously of um, kombucha and of um, kefir in Bolivia that had just died out with modern wow. cooking methods. That originated from, from Bulgaria originally? Probably, yeah, no, I don't know. There was, you had an amazing story of, back to Mr. Katz, about his yogurt culture. Yeah, so I'm really fortunate that I have... Uh, heirloom yogurt culture that are still used now um, because Sandor Katz in 2019 when I was at his workshop he told us the story of how he had got his heirloom yogurt culture from a bakery in New York called Jonas Schimmel which is still there um, and a Romanian Jew came over over 100 years ago with his culture and traditionally the way that they would bring cultures was to dry the yogurt on a cotton handkerchief, put it in their luggage, and then whenever they ended up in the new world, wherever they were going, they could just rehydrate this cotton handkerchief and start their yogurt culture. And this bakery supposedly has been making the same yogurt ever since. So he did the same thing, but he said he forgot about this cotton cloth and it was in a desk for a couple of months and he suddenly found it. And rehydrated it and it was fine so under his tutelage I did the same thing I dried off the yogurt and put it on the washing line dried it off and put it in my suitcase and brought it back here and I've been making yogurt with it ever since and it's delicious it's a really good strong culture so you just to get the detail on that you took your cotton handkerchief while you're in Tennessee and then you almost smeared yogurt onto it yeah. and then hung it on the washing line not in direct sunlight not in direct sunlight I mean okay. it's quite warm in, in it was quite warm in the daytime um, I think I had to bring it indoors eventually and you basically it's just sort of dry and crispy and then I folded it up and put it in a plastic bag yeah <laughs> and then so when you get back home you just like the same process as making yogurt, you had you warmed up your milk to sterilize it, and then you just put your. No, so I basically I put the handkerchief in just milk, just plain milk. Okay. And then to rehydrate it, and then I used that milk the same way that you would use a yogurt starter. So then I heated up the milk and then cooled it down slightly, and then when it was at the right temperature, I added that. Cotton <coughs> snotty, hangy, <laughs> yogurty liquid to it. And out through the amazing world of microorganisms, they're still... They all just came back to life. They all just came back to life, yeah. Wow. I'd, I'd love to... Um, I understand you're a master um, composter. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd love to talk to you about compost. Well, so I think there's so much 
cross-pollination between composting and fermenting because you're both you're sort of in awe of microorganisms and the work that they do and in the case of fermenting it's transforming foods into lovely flavors and preserving it through the action of these things that are invisible and with composting it's similar but through the action of microorganisms as well as lots of invertebrates and worms and creep crawlies you transform the waste from your kitchen or the waste from your garden into something amazing i did worm composting which just is amazing to me because you transform all your kitchen scraps into this black gold through the action of worms and microorganisms i feel like there's a little lot of uh there's a lot of cross-pollination between those two worlds. Uh, one thing I haven't got into, but I want to, is bokashi, which is a Japanese anaerobic composting using microorganisms, so I, using lactic acid bacteria. Oh, really? Can you, sorry, can you explain the, the process? Yeah, so you com- it's a way of composting, but it's in an anaerobic, oxygen-deprived environment. And the substrate usually is a bran that's inoculated with lactic acid bacteria. So you usually have to buy this substrate, but um, okay. if, if, you know we're in the business of culturing lactic acid bacteria. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there must be a way of making the substrate instead of having to buy it, and then it's just another form of making compost. So you have, you have your um, substrate, you mix it with all of your... like. Your food, your food waste right, or right. scraps from the garden. And you put it in a closed environment without oxygen. Okay. And then the microbes, the lactic acid bacteria, just the same as they do with, a, well, I don't say the same, a similar <laughs> fashion that they do in an anaerobic environment with most of our ferments are anaerobic, some are aerobic with oxygen, but in this case, these lactic acid bacteria break down the food scraps in this substrate um, and make compost. Wow. No, that's fascinating. Gardening is the one, is the thing I, I, I want to get into. <laughs> I want to have more time to, um, to get out in the garden. I feel like everybody says it's the best thing possible for your soul. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think getting your hands dirty with soil and or sauerkraut or miso, it's the sort of the has a, I think a similar healing effect on your soul. Yeah, yeah. You, and you said you went around the country teaching composting? Or? Um, so not in this country, um, but in different countries that I've lived in, including in America. So in Washington State, the um, Master Gardener program started, and that's been transported world wide now we master beekeepers and master everything so they transposed that into composting so when I lived in Washington state I took a certification to become a master composter there and the premise for a master composter master gardener program is that you're given free education it's usually like a night an evening class over a whole term or a whole semester and then in return, you volunteer in the community either to run a composting demonstration site or to go to county fairs or to 
set up booths. So from then on in Washington State and other places I've lived in America and in Kenya and in Bolivia and in Poland, I've done composting workshops. So how to build compost bins, how to build a worm bin, how to collect your scraps, what to do with the compost when you've got it, and just, just for free, just as a community activity, because I just think it's fun, and kids love worms and playing with the dirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, so that's, that, you know, that was another passion, which still is mine. I have all, all these boxes outside are all worm bins. Oh, wow. You said, so you also lived in Kenya for... Yeah, so we lived in Kenya for four years, uh, as part of our career in the foreign service. Wow. And um, again, you know, just an amazing culture, amazing food culture, very meat, meat heavy, meat and dairy, uh, but of course, like lots of different vegetables and things that I had never heard of before, and you know, learning so much about cooking from, from local Kenyans that I met. Wow. Do they have much, um, many different ferments that they make as part of their well, cuisine? Well, yes, probably, but it was difficult for us because I expect that a lot of the, the fermenting was going on in small villages and rural areas. I don't think it was going on in the urban. We lived in Nairobi, mm-hmm. so I don't think it was. But um, you know, I'm pretty sure there are different drinks. But I, unfortunately, I didn't at that time. I didn't really have much access to some of the smaller rural areas, other than just as a visitor. Mm-hmm. And when you were in, I guess you'd say Poland is like the sauerkraut capital of oh, the world. Oh yeah. No, I loved. Uh, so Poland was my first posting in the foreign service. And one of my favorite things to do was to go to the local open air market every Saturday. And just as I have in every country I've lived in, just look and breathe and smell and see all the new things and the flavors or the fruit or vegetables I've never had before. And, you know, Poland has got such a huge, rich culture of fermenting. And one of the things I loved there was that people would buy pickles and buy sauerkraut straight out of the barrel. They would take their own plastic box or plastic bag and then it was just weighed so there's no sort of no no waste but I remember seeing the big barrels of um, the fermented cucumbers and when they'd open a new barrel they would pull out a whole branch an oak tree branch with leaves and twigs and everything and that was their source of tannin as well as all of the flavorings with the dill and the and the and the garlic and you know no worry about the sort of putting sticks in your food normally <laughs> modern <laughs> modern food we were like oh my gosh there's a stick in my food but there it was part of the it was introducing the microorganisms and also uh the tannins as well and the, and the tannins help the the pickles to remain yeah the tannins in especially in Cucumber pickles help it to stay crisp because you know one of the holy grails in my book of fermenting is that crisp garlicky cucumber pickle. You know the worst thing is to have that lovely flavour and you bite into it and it's just sort of soft, soggy, yeah, soggy. <laughs> so. And um, 
have you ever have you ever put your life in danger with is this something that people always ask me <clears throat> if I've ever gone to hospital because of something that I've fermented or Ethan have you ever had a a scare well yes it wasn't strictly fermenting although I was tr- I was aiming to ferment so um in Bolivia and I think in other Latin American countries they eat a kind of bean it's a lupini lupin bean they call them chochos in Bolivia and I'd always bought them in plastic bags in already brined in Bolivia and they're delicious those little salty salty snacks and they're very very high in protein so I thought oh you know I'm sure that you could break down the toxin in these I'd heard they were toxic by fermenting um, so I bought some dry and I put them in the, in the pressure cooker and I cook them in the pressure cooker just as if you would cook um, soybeans I tasted them, they were a bit bitter cooked them a bit more, they were still bitter cooked them a bit more, they were bitter and so after the three or four times cooking them I had consumed quite a lot of them and I felt really, really unwell so whatever toxin was in there was still in there and it got so bad that I went on Google to look as we do when anything <laughs> happens to see you know how am I going to die and I did find de- incidences of death from these lupini beans <laughs> so I went and first thing I did was told my husband if I die or you have to take me to hospital this is what I've been eating so they know what antidote to give me uh, but luckily I recovered but I haven't, uh, now I've got, I buy lupin beans, or these chochos, but they're already pre-processed. I haven't been brave enough to buy the raw ones and try them again yet, but one of these days <laughs> I will, but yeah. There was another, um, a kind of uh, Bolivian alcohol I wanted to to ask you about. Did you say it was called chicha? Chicha, yeah, so there's a, there's a drink that's not fermented called Chicha Morada, which is made with pineapple skins and purple maize, that's a soft drink. But the that's from Peru, Peru, Bolivia. But in Latin America, they make a drink called chicha, which is an alcoholic drink. Um, but the way they ferment it is by starting off introducing the microorganisms by chewing the corn, chewing the maize and then spitting it into a vessel with sugar and water and that kicks off the fermentation and it sounds disgusting to us but um, you know if you're trying to create your own homebrew and you just don't happen to have Amazon delivers all the best (laughs) you know finest you know beer yeast and champagne yeast you make do with what you have and by the time that it's fermented anything nasty from your saliva is probably not there but I did taste it out of a coconut half as a cup um, in a small village in Bolivia and it was, it was fine it was like a it was almost like I guess kombucha would be the closest thing oh really sort of like slightly sour sour kombucha cloudy wow and it would be you would consume it on the same on the same day or it was like no no you know, people sort of make it continuously and and drink it but it, it again like a lot of things I think it's died out in the urban areas and it really only is something in, in rural areas that people yeah. that's their own version of <laughs> quite a niche because the, the corn in Latin America or at least in Bolivia it isn't like the corn that we have it's not like sweet corn 
the maize, the maize is probably closer to original forms. It's large, whiter, tougher grains with a more sort of cornier flavour. It's not as sweet as what we would call sweet corn. It's more okay. starchy. Uh, in fact, one time I went to I went to Buenos Aires to a supermarket and I saw yellow sweet corn. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So I put a load in my suitcase to bring back to Bolivia because we couldn't get just normal, regular, what we call sweet corn. There. Yeah. I hadn't had it in over a year. So it's, but the, I mean, the local corn there is nice. It's just tougher than what yeah. we normally eat. There was um, one other place you said you lived in. Um, you said you stayed in Pakistan for yes. a time. Yes, so Pakistan... Um, I lived in Islamabad and then also I worked out of the consulate in Peshawar in northern Pakistan and um, the the food of course there is amazing I just love and it spoiled me for food back here in England um, just just delicious all the different flavors and different ways of cooking food um, I just just loved it. In fact, I did make a couple of food videos for the social social media there. So um, one of the things that they use it to ferment, but one thing that I have got now is dried pomegranate seeds oh. that goes in some of the cooking. And then I also learned that Scotch eggs were not invented by Fortnum and Mason, as they like to tell you, <laughs> because I was at a buffet once and there are these halved scotch eggs in a tomato sauce and I'm like oh I never had scotch eggs in a smoke and they're like no those are Nargisi koftas so of course not made from pork these were you know made from beef or chicken um so Nargisi koftas were invented by the Mughal Empire centuries before Fortnum and Mason invented them oh really yeah. I did not know that yeah so Nargisi, I think, means narcissus, so the yellow and white with the egg in the middle. Oh, amazing. Okay. I need, I'm going to need to go and Google that now and do some <laughs> research on scotch <laughs> eggs. That's No, I never knew that. And so now you are, um, you're in London, you're not traveling anymore. Um, and um, can you tell me a bit about Favori and... Yeah, so um, I've been passionate of course about fermenting and I'm at, I've got a tradition of teaching workshops and passing on information I have and I wanted to do something that continues this tradition and I want to share my love of fermenting with people so I'm doing workshops either at my house or at other locations um, and also for community groups as well on teaching people how to ferment because I think that I, I don't think I believe and I know that you can create nutritious delicious food inexpensively with just a little bit of knowledge so I'm not trying to put fermenters out of business <laughs> I'm not no. trying to stop people but if if you want to make something yourself, you can make a jar of sauerkraut for pennies and it's mm -hmm. just nutritious and just giving people that knowledge 
of how to make kefir and how to do something on a daily basis. And I think now, after the last couple of years we've gone through, people are much more interested in their health and gut health. I mean, many of us who ferment have sort of known this for years, but it's becoming more and more prevalent. Um, but there's still a lack of knowledge about basically how fermenting works. People also have a fear of how to make it safe. And so I think one of the one of the roles that as an educator you can have is to reassure people as long as they follow certain guidelines that you can make it you can make it very safely. I mean I I've, I've never got sick from fermented food, have you? No, no, I haven't. I haven't. I think you're so right. It's um whenever I'm making videos of making miso, people are asking me like it can't be that simple. Mm-hmm. It's like there's there's nothing to it. You're not doing any of the work it's the the organisms are doing all the legwork right. for you and i think if you do have something go wrong and you open up a jar you know immediately yeah and you don't need a ph meter to tell you you can look at it and there's a big thick layer of mold or it smells disgusting and i think people have got away from using their senses and you know you've got a eyes and your nose and your sense of taste and using those three things most of the time you will be pretty right pretty correct we know what, when food is spoiled and i'm not suggesting that you sort of you know sniff your chicken i'm i'm talking about with in the fermenting world with yeah. mostly vegetables we we know when things are bad and we we throw them away or compost them yeah and so um yeah the the worst thing really is that happens is is mold it's pretty obvious to tell when it's when it's bad although some mold's good like in cheese (laughs) (laughs) the um the last thing i wanted to speak to you about was your you said you had a story with your was it your sister or your sister-in-law my sister yeah so when i was living in bolivia um my sister who lives here in london um, she developed a very aggressive form of leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, and she became very, very sick. Um, and she was treated at UCL in London, but after a couple of rounds of chemo, they told her really the only long-term uh, treatment that would be effective for her was a stem cell transplant. So I was connected. I was they, I was living in Bolivia. And the health unit at the embassy took my blood and sent it back here to London. And um, it was tested and I was found to be a match. And I came back, to Boliv- came back from Bolivia. And to cut a long story short, I donated my stem cells to her. Now, five, six years later, she's reco- fully recovered. Uh, she has n- she's not taking any medicines or anti-rejection pills related to the cancer um, and her blood has my DNA but through the period of recovery after that and during that time when I was staying with her her immune system of course was and still is you know in recovery stage so she has an allotment she has grows amazing fruits and vegetables and so I shared my knowledge of fermenting with her so now she's also helping to heal her immune system through fermenting. So she makes her own sauerkrauts and 
Jerusalem artichokes and she's actually better at me than at olives now. She's developed <laughs> her own system of olive curing, wow. grows her own olives. So it just feels really good to be able to share that information and help her with her, help her with her journey. And um, we still have that informal bartering system and she gives me her allotment produce. I, I ferment it, I give it back to her and you know she gives me her eggs from her chickens and we share a lot every time i go visit her i'm uh taking little pots of things and both my sisters have developed a taste for natto which is also very uh the marmite of the fermenting world but very very good for it very very healthy food yeah yeah natto is the one thing i haven't really tried to make myself yet I've been putting it off. <laughs> well, I think the first time you try it, you have to be quite brave because the appearance is a bit off looking with the threads are sort of yeah, very slimy, slimy looking threads. But no, I'm a it's the marmite of the fermenting world. I, I do love it. It's got a very strong flavor, but some people don't like it at all. Yeah, it's a it's a divisive. <laughs> it's a divisive one. No, um. Well, thank you, thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing. We've, I've had the whole tour, and we've, <laughs> my stomach is, my stomach is singing with all of the different uh, ingredients we've been trying. Well, you're welcome. Um, I'm glad to share it, share my passion with you, and um, I was happy to taste some of your delicious miso. So you've inspired me to, to get into the world of misos. Yeah, that's a dangerous, it's a big rabbit hole to fall down. But no, I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll <laughs> find your way there. Um, yeah, thank you. There you have it. Thank you so much for listening. Please send me your comments and your feedback. They are greatly appreciated. All the best. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.